I'm Andre 3001, a space odyssey. And I'm a singular baked bean. And welcome to Planet of the Meerkats. I'm drinking Target brand 100% Colombian coffee. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> You're tired, are you? Oh, a bit. And I just felt like coffee. I didn't feel like a beer. I am fully ready to relax. I've been working all day long. As you know, I started a new job this week. And so I'm working way more than I was used to in my previous <laughs> life as a freelancer. I can finally relax Sunday night, 420. Uh, an auspicious time to be drinking an IPA that tastes like weed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's 420 and I'm a singular baked bean, which <laughs> could be interpreted. It could be interpreted in different ways. Yes. So uh, this is kind of like the finale to our season two, yeah, which like... was loosely based around sort of interrogating the idea of the future. And we wanted to conclude today on kind of an optimistic note. Tell us a little bit about the theme. So our, our stance are, is uh, that things are better than they've ever been before, which isn't to say that they're necessarily good in a lot of aspects, but on almost every aspect of society, things have been improving steadily now for a long time. And I don't think people recognize this. There's a, a real tendency to see things as bad. And it's, it's I, I think to our detriment, we don't recognize our accomplishments and the degree that, you know, society has gotten better and improved and improved the lot in life of the people that live in that society. And our media environment, especially here in the U.S., is just like the sky is falling 100% of the time. Well, and on the left, it's falling for different reasons than it is on the right. You know, it, you know, everybody is just constantly talking about how, you know, the, the fabric of our society is in peril and we're all going to die. And, you know, if somebody else is out to get you and you need to you know, do blah, blah, blah. Doomsday sells. It's like yeah. sex. You know, I almost think it's almost, it's almost pornographic at a certain point. The era of social media, we've kind of come to this point where I think in the two thousands, there were cute, nice aspects of social media. Like let's, mm -hmm. let's friend people and let's, let's, uh, let's poke them. I poked you. <laughs> we'll share 500 photos of what we did over the weekend. Um, all of that stuff is is way in the rearview mirror and mm -hmm. now uh, with social media it's like let's reinforce our viewpoints and curate our experience and i think for many people that means really getting worked up around the worst possible news you can curate so there's a guy named hans rosling and he wrote a book called factfulness and a lot of that book is about our bias uh, for seeing things as worse than we re they really are and there's a questionnaire he's been giving out to people. And one of the questions on the questionnaire was, in the last 20 years, the percentage of the world living in extreme poverty has A, almost doubled, B, stayed the same, or C, almost half, halved. And the answer is C. But in the U.S., only 5% of respondents answered correctly. They thought it had either almost doubled or stayed the same. And, you know, the thing is, we don't see that. And, you know, you, the U.S. was not alone. I zeroed in on the U.S. because, you know, we're American. We live in the U.S. So this is our society. But it was a, the results were pretty consistent all over the world. 
like the having of global population and extreme poverty over the last 20 years, that's a big deal. Yeah. No one's really talking about it. Like, <laughs> I think one thing that has happened over the past 20 years as the U.S. has seen its sort of global reputation and global position as the sole superpower kind of tumble a bit. Mm-hmm. I think we're still the only superpower. I think China is going to be mm-hmm. a superpower, but I still think that we are at the top. We we know that we are, <laughs> we know we are on the, the downslope of, of things, right? Like our empire yeah. is crumbling. And I think that, I think people selfishly, miss the old days when when we were on top even if that meant that that comes at the expense of common good global common good well i mean you look at afghanistan right we've been in afghanistan for 20 years and didn't do much else other than prop up a corrupt government and things did get better um hey we enriched some uh, american contractors though yes at a certain point you know we have to cut our losses. And so mm-hmm. we've pulled out of there and yes, it's been tragic. The people trying to escape from the Taliban and Taliban rule, but at a certain point, like you have to pull the bandaid off and let people, let a society make decisions for itself and mm-hmm. work through those problems. Because I think what we found is as an external power, trying to impose something like democracy, that doesn't work. You have to let it develop organically for it to be lasting. I had an interesting conversation with my dad yesterday. He, I think, is slightly more pessimistic than me about the prospects of the future for the United States, the, mm-hmm. our prospects for kind of coming out of the spiral. My dad was unveiling this scenario by which the, uh, you know, the sheikhs of, of the Middle East decide to, you know, cut deals with China. China becomes a beneficiary of cheap oil. United mm-hmm. States economy tumbles because of that. And we, we sort of become a sort of second, second class country. I'm more optimistic than that. I think that we are still a world leader in innovation. We mm-hmm. have so much money in this country. And I think that we are not seeing some of the super important innovations that are happening right now, which are going to propel us into the future, but we're just not quite there yet. And it's hard to see that part of the story when we're not fully in it. Well, and let's say that that scenario does happen, right? We, if in an emergency, we do have access to fracking fuel and renewable energy sources from wind power to water power to solar power are cheaper than they've ever been before. Uh, you know, everybody sneered at Obama's initiative to promote renewable power. And I think it was, it was either Paul Krugman or Tom Friedman in the New York Times recently wrote a uh, column basically saying, it worked like the cost of things has gone down dramatically. And a big part of that is because of the federal investment in that stuff. Mm-hmm. So like, even if that were to happen, like there's a way through that. There's a path through that. I actually think it wouldn't be a bad thing for us to be forced off of oil yeah. and to, to be forced to, to invest even further in green technologies. Look, it's, we, we are poised to be able to really move our economy all the way to renewables. Mm-hmm. We could. And I think the only reason we're not is because it would cost money to do so. And hey, if if we're to, if we're looking at big problems like climate change, we need to be able to pay the price to like really make steps to sort of insulate ourselves against the worst outcomes. Well, and speaking to your dad's pessimism, I think it's it's easy to see society developing in ways that diver, diverge from what you're used to and automatically start 
assuming things are getting worse. I remember a few years back, I was doing a crypto quote, and there were, the quote mm-hmm. was, the children live in luxury, they have bad members, manners, contempt for authority, they show disrespect for their elders, they don't rise when the elders enter the room, they contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble their food, cross their legs, and are tyrants over their teachers. And I remember doing this, and I was nodding my head, I'm like, yeah, man, this quote's right on. And then I got to the end, and the person who said it was Socrates. <laughs> so this is not a new a new way of thinking about things. Like everybody feels like society is crumbling away from what their expectations are. And it's mm-hmm. been going on for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, we also have a straight line instinct where we expect trends to continue linear, linearly. Um, but there, that doesn't, that doesn't really happen. And we'll get mm-hmm. into this, but like, you know, you think, Oh man, if people keep having babies at the rate, they're having babies, we're going to be at 15 billion people. Well, as societies get richer and less impoverished, they have less babies. Uh, And then, you know, bad things are newsworthy and there's still plenty of bad things. And but there's lots of good things that you don't necessarily hear about. And we're going to talk about those. Yeah. And I I think building on that, uh, a point you've made is that the most extreme people are the loudest. And I I think Mm -hmm. we're we're seeing that right now in the U.S. There's so much terrible news around sort of right-wing extremists like the dude this week that, you know, had the had a bomb in his truck or whatever in front of the Library of Congress. And, you know, the January 6th insurrection. My dad also, you know, I think rightly so, is, is pissed about this stuff, right? If you're just mm-hmm. a normal person in America and you just want to, like, you know, live a good life, raise your family, try to get ahead in the ways that you can, and it's like, wh- what what are these people doing, man? This is like madness and you know i can understand that being pissed off about it but well, um, and, i think and that's right, a minority you know well and rightfully pissed yeah, right for sure it's good to be pissed about these things it's good to want to improve things you just have to keep it in perspective yeah this bad stuff happens but really in relation to where we were in the past it's better like yeah. less of it happens less of it is successful that guy with the bomb wasn't successful you know he didn't he didn't uh do that i think my dad's point is that he wants all the regular people to be more pissed and to rise up and show and protest and show that they're pissed. And I, I agree yeah. with that. We're also distrust, distrustful of other people. And mm-hmm. I think that leads to a self-fulfilling prophecy because the more distrustful you are, the more likely you are to justify being misleading or dishonest with other people. I'm not just, I'm not trying to say everybody's a liar, but it's, 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 you know, it's a matter of degrees and it's a, mm-hmm. a matter of, you know, sort of your perspective and how you view things. And there's so much progress being made in in science and technology these days that I, it sows a lot of fear, right? We've talked about these topics before, but GMOs, CRISPR, <laughs> lab-grown meat, nanotechnology, obviously huge leaps in the, the technology behind vaccinations. <laughs> it scares the shit out of people, you know? Yeah, like, they don't understand are, it. Rightly so. You have to be, you know, you have to have a PhD to understand some of these things. Yeah. But we're here to say these are good things. <laughs> so I re- I recently read the book Solaris by Stanislav Lem, and it was also um, made into two movies. But uh, I thought that was it was a good illustration of our distrustfulness. So the plot is basically we discover this planet, and the planet is covered in what it turns out to sort of be a sentient ocean. And when we send people to explore it, the ocean reacts in ways that we don't expect and leads to death. But it doesn't really seem hostile. 
and it also manifests people from the subconsciouses subconsciousnesses of the explorers so like the main character gets there and his dead wife shows up and by all it, to for all intents and purposes she is his wife but she's his wife as she existed when she was 20 before she committed suicide and you know he did analysis and right down to the molecular level she was the same but the people who are there are torn because on one hand they see these people from their past coming back and they don't trust it. But then on the other hand, like they kind of embrace the people because it really is, it's their loved ones. And I also have a movie pitch <laughs> based on this. So uh, I think we should, be, I think somebody, maybe Wes Anderson should make a movie called Solaris to hotel Solaris. I think that we should return to Solaris in the sequel and build a hotel there. And people can come stay at the hotel and chill with their, you know, their dead loved ones. <laughs> and, you know, don't mistrust it because, you know, in, throughout the entire story, the planet really ne never gives them a reason to distrust the people who are there. And they don't ever resolve whether it's something consciously being done by the planet or subconsciously or why it's happening. But, hey, I mean, who doesn't want to see their, their dead loved ones, right? You could... Uh, have people pay an exorbitant amount of money. They go stay at the Hotel Solaris, chill with their dead father or their dead spouse or their dead kids. They get to say their goodbyes, then they come home. And Can we tie this into your Ghostbusters idea? <laughs> um, and have <laughs> Hotel Solaris can also be haunted. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when Marvel ultimately fails, at some point, Marvel will not be cool anymore. Um, yeah. And that's when the Ghostbusters franchise, the global franchise, will will rise to take its place. And we're we're just looking for ways to make this not only international but uh, galactic as well. You know, Ghostbusters people, give me a call. I have the key. I have the key to billions of dollars that you're just leaving on the table right now. One eight hundred Dave Busters, <laughs> not Dave and Busters. <laughs> Dave Busters. <laughs> All right, so Dave, what do we mean by by better? Okay, so less poverty. In 1800, 85% of the world lived in extreme poverty. That's kind of nuts. That's crazy. Like extreme poverty being like you don't know what you, what you where you're going to get the next meal for the table or you don't know where you're going to live. Like 85%. In 1997, 29% of the world lived in extreme poverty. So that's still, that's a that's a great improvement but it's still pretty high but as of 2017 nine percent of the world lives in extreme poverty wow. like that that is still too high right we still don't want nine percent of the world being extreme poverty but like that's huge progress and like so yeah on one hand let's acknowledge like we need to lift the rest of these people out of poverty and give them the means to do so but can we at least acknowledge we're making like an amazing amount of progress like 1997 is not that long ago <laughs> you know, there's there's always this argument I hear made that like we can't afford to feed all the people we have, right? Mm -hmm. The future is going to be bleak because we can't, there are too many people on the earth and we can't support this many people. I think that is a false dichotomy. I think everyone can have enough. We have the technology to do that. It's do we have the political will to do that? And, you know, there that's the Malthusian dilemma. In the 70s, there was a book called written called The Population Bomb, which is basically like, mm -hmm. hey, the population's getting bigger. We're not going to be able to feed them. And there's going to be, you know, this huge amount of poverty. And that didn't happen. And that didn't happen because of increases in technology and better farming techniques. Yeah, crop yields. Mm -hmm. 
And people are having less babies. You know, in 1948, women gave birth to an average of five babies each. Now mm-hmm. it's two and a half. Like my dad's family had four kids plus one who died in infancy. Uh, my mother-in-law's family had five. Like that, it, I have two, you have one. My my brother and my brother-in-law, they each have two. Like it, it, people are having less children. And that's happening. That That is directly tied to poverty as countries become less impoverished they have less babies and so it doesn't grow as fast as you expect it because again things don't happen in a straight line we're also living longer Mm -hmm. so global life expectancy in 1950 was 50 years old now it's 72 and it's you know 72 in the united states so the we are at the average it's higher in some places like people are just living longer which is awesome we only have 30 years left dave oh god it may be global life expectancy (laughs) will be higher i mean i predict when my kids are uh get older they're gonna have the means to live you know into their triple digits not to put too fine a point on it both brahman and i come from hardy stock mm-hmm. <laughs> people <Yeah>. who lived <laughs> lived to be old so we probably <laughs> will as well and our kids will benefit from that so overall we are less violent yeah steven pinker said the decline of violence may be the most significant and least appreciated development in the history of our species this is an interesting stat about homicides. So in the year 1300, there are an estimated 80 homicides per 100,000 people in Western Europe. In the year 2000, there was one per 100,000. Which um, comparing it to the, the 14th century might be a little weird, but like decline is decline. That's a huge decline. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, in the year 1610, there were 700 homicides per 100,000 people in the Southeastern U.S. Now... To me, what jumps out about that is that that was obviously slavery was mm-hmm. probably yeah. a, a driver of that number, right? Yeah. But by 1980, the, that number would drop to 10 per one. 1900, people. it dropped to 10. Oh, oh uh, yeah. In 1980, there were uh, 10 homicides per 100,000 all across the U.S. In 2010, okay. there, were there were four. four. Wow. So that's 30 years there. I mean, World War II is the thing that jumps out to me here. Um you know, you, you just look at you look at warfare and mm-hmm. the amount of people that died in the 20th century in wars was just unfathomable. Yeah. And we look at wars now and like war still exists, obviously, and it's a terrible thing. But like people are not dying at the scale in wars yeah. that they once were. And that is a massive I mean, I think that I think we can point to that and say, well, things could go back to the way they were, but I don't think they will. I think yeah. that that's 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 progress. Well, and we have a measurement problem. Right. So we measure war deaths much more accurately now than in the past. So we have a much better idea of how many people died in World War II than we do during the Civil War or the Crimean or not the Crimean War, the the Seven Years War or the Hundred Years War. And you go back, the less accurate those things are. You know, Steven Pinker, again, estimates that the wars of the past centuries were far more deadly and common. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you read literature from then there was always a big war going on, right? Mm-hmm. Napoleon was conquering Europe or, you know, something you, you read the Bible, like the Bible is a bloody, bloody history of a lot of death. And, you know, that scale of killing doesn't happen anymore. So even if you were to include world war one and two, the 20th century was actually less deadly than the past centuries. I wonder if Trump had won. I know that we can cut, the, <laughs> cut this because this is political, but I wonder if Trump had won re-election, what we potentially could have been in store for. I always felt like he was just itching to 
mass exterminate some people. She is as much as I dislike Trump and you know, whether or not we keep this in, I don't know as much as I dislike Trump, a lot of our fears about the worst that could happen. Didn't come to bear. A lot of the damage he did was to our norms and I mean, to our national cohesion. But as far as like the number of deaths and the number of, I agree with you, but to my, to my dad's point in our conversation yesterday, you know, it, it was definitely like, all right, you know, the system held, but had literally a handful of people. Mm-hmm. If like five people had been <laughs> Trumpists, <laughs> that could have been different. Like it yeah. literally came down to a handful of people that that decided to uphold the rule of law. But um, I think Trump was more of a symptom than he was a cause. I agree. And I that, think right sure. now what we have is there's a shifting of power and there's been sort of a, a dominant power structure of white males in the u.s Mm -hmm. that is predominated for the entire history and that is really starting to shift the u.s is becoming uh, more ethnically diverse power shifting away from men in a way that it hasn't before and that's threatening and that type of change really instigates a lot of distrust which is why you see a rise in nationalism and you see a rise in you know just outright blatant racism and it's sickening yeah. because you see it and it's like, these are my neighbors and I can't believe they're acting like this. But I also think it's fleeting. You know, I think, you know, these things, they're going to come, they're going to come to a head and then they're going to go away or they're going to fade, fade to the background and just become another one of those background problems that we always have to be aware of. I really hope you're right. But because this is an episode about optimism, <laughs> I'm going to say that I, I agree with you. <laughs> I think that... <laughs> I think that we will. I, I, I mean, I think, I think that this is this is one of those moments it, that we're going to look back in 30, 40 years and and see as a very tumultuous time when we were certainly going through a new sorting of power and mm-hmm. you know political leanings and you know just trying to find our footing in this new world. And there have been new technologies that have really shaken us, shaken our foundations. But it will. I think we will get to an, a point of equilibrium. Uh, so we are, d- despite a lot of the headlines, we're in a less <laughs> less racist time than ever before. So in the 1880s, there were an average of 150 lynchings per year in the, in the U.S. And almost all of those were white on black perpetrated. By 1960, this was close to zero. And by that time, a lynching was unusual enough for people to stand up and take notice. For instance, when Emmett Till was mutilated and lynched, murdered, in 1955 and the killer set free it was unusual enough of an occurrence that it spurred the civil rights movement and yeah one lynching is too much but one is better than 150 and things mm-hmm. you know we're able to talk about this stuff you know recently at work we had a meeting and again it's a university so it's going to tend to be more progressive than your average company but we had a meeting where it was you know an hour and a half of us talking about racism and listening to what people had to say about the way society treated them and just, you know, giving them the space to talk. And, you know, I think that's, we're a leading indicator. I don't, I I think that, you know, we're having these conversations all over the country and in the past we ignored it. And because we ignored it, we didn't even know it existed, but hate crimes have fallen in 1996. There were five hate crime murders of African-Americans per year. 2008, there was one Um, in the U S we're having, more frank conversations. I mean, when you hear about a black man 
getting unfairly killed or brutalized by a police officer. Get bad. Do something. But acknowledge that we aren't ignoring it anymore. Like, it's news now, and a growing number of people care and want to change things, and we're putting pressure on the systems to reform. It may not be fast. There may not be a panacea. But I predict 10 years from now, things are going to look a lot different and feel a lot better. Yeah, I saw a tweet yesterday. It was, I forget who the people in the scenario were, but it was a a Muslim American anchor, I think for CNN, that was interviewing a Muslim American uh, correspondent talking about Afghanistan. Yeah. And the tweet was something to the effect like, you know, yeah, things suck right now, but like, imagine this, this just didn't happen in 2001 when Mm -hmm. 9-11 happened. Yeah. And here we are 20 years later and like there has been progress. And I think, I think we, we are slow to see those changes and we need to celebrate, we need to stop and celebrate them. Yeah. Because yeah, the world's not perfect, but those are very important changes and representation matters. And we see representation being thrust to the front of the conversation because it's super important and it's working. (laughs) <laughs> it is working so we just need to keep at it you know and it's easy for us to sit here and talk about this being you know upper middle class white males but i think we both want things to get better for you know our brothers and sisters of every type and i don't think we're alone um yeah, and sure. we're willing to we're willing to stand up and you know vote and push through changes as much as we can and i think there's a growing number of people that are you know it's the the silent the silent decent majority they don't they don't want people to be treated unfairly and badly and to be subject to fear uh when they have a traffic stop you know i've never felt afraid of the police so i don't know what that's like but on the other hand i want everybody to experience experience that right to be able to trust the people that are supposed to protect us yeah and we we are white cisgendered upper middle class white men yeah but it's still it's important that we to advance the conversation to acknowledge and to acknowledge that our our role in it is to talk to our families to mm-hmm. talk to our friends to make it known that we support that progress and that progress is happening and by centering the voices of the people that need to be heard like that's what we can do right and i think i think nothing gets done in this country if we can't celebrate the the wins that we have mm-hmm. if it's all doom and gloom then like what are we fighting for? Right? Like, I think people need to acknowledge and celebrate and yes, like be committed to continuing to work and, and, and know your place, you know, your <laughs> place in that movement. But, but I don't think it's bad to be able to, to sit there and say, Hey, like things are changing and that's good. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're also becoming less misogynist and I found an interesting stat. Well, first of all, I'll just say in 1893, almost no country allowed women to vote. This was a hundred, the number was at 193 countries in 2015. Mm-hmm. So not allowing women to vote and participate in the governance of the country is definitely an exception now. But the the interesting stat I saw was the pender, gender pay gap. And, uh, you know, for the record, I think the pay gap is disgusting, but it's shrinking. And in 1979, women made an average of 62% that of men. In 2000, that rose to 78%. In 2019, that number is 82%. I mean, when you see that, obviously things are stagnating a bit and obviously it's not a hundred percent. So that's still a problem, but it, you know, it's, it's one of those things that if we keep pushing progress and pushing for it to change, it will, you know, my boss, my boss's boss and my boss's boss's boss are all women. And yeah, that's in higher ed, but I think it's a leading indicator. I mean, I've been, 
deeply affected by the images coming out of Afghanistan of people clinging to airplanes, trying to get away from the Taliban. And, you know, for all the faults of the U.S. occupation of that country, girls' access to education improved. But it still wasn't good. Only about 50% of the schools of school age were in school. And, you know, a lot of it had to do with the corrupt Afghan government that we were propping up. And this is a country, example of a country now that is ruled by the Taliban, could backslide into the past, could start requiring burqas, you know, keep women out of school, subjugate women. And that's really concerning. But on the other hand, they're not going to have the boogeyman of the United States to fight against anymore. And the Taliban, as bad as they are, is more engaged in international politics. Um, I read an article, I think it was by Tom Friedman of the New York Times. He recently pointed out that, you know, the uh, that elevation of the Taliban onto the world stage could be a motivating factor for for them to allow progress. So his point was, you know, the Taliban right now are giving lip service to this, but we're gonna have to see what happens. But let's not assume the worst yet. Um, I would I would also say that the United States needs to be more consistent. Let let's just compare the Taliban with Saudi Arabia, the way that those two regimes like treat women. You know, one is our steadfast ally, and the other is well now not. So are we going to be consistent? Are we going to call out Saudi Arabia? I think that I think that we just need to expect better <laughs> from our allies. And that could go a long way towards setting an example. And also, you know, I think we need to continue to push our government to do better. You know, one of the th- great things about the United States isn't that it's always right. We are not the shining beacon on the hill that a lot of people think we are the standard of morality. Like that's just not the case, but what we are is a country that allows, you know, free discussion and expression of ideas. We're allowed to call the government to account and vote people out when they do things that we don't agree with and slowly, but surely things improve. Foreign policy is one of the harder things because it's really driven by sensational news coverage. Most people don't know a lot about it. And unless something spectacular is happening, most people don't care. And so I think that's one of the more resistant aspects of change for our government. But again, it's something we have control over. I, I think we're we we're in we're witnessing something this week which is truly historic. And Biden is getting criticized for in a lot of ways, and I disagree with most of those. And we can look at the minutia of it. But to to have a, an American president finally make a decision on this 20-year war that mm-hmm. was politically easier to just kick the can down the road that's a that is a huge this is a huge deal mm-hmm. like this is a massively huge deal yeah we've yet to really figure out how best to intervene in countries and help them displace mm-hmm. uh like dictatorships and uh, oppressive regimes um it almost always leads to really bad consequences and so it, we haven't figured out how to do it right um, mm-hmm. And Afghanistan is really no exception. But one thing Afghanistan has been consistent on in the modern world is power to come in there fail. It's not a country that you can you can influence dramatically from the outside without a lot of costs. Mm-hmm. And so they really need to be supported, and the Afghans do. And you know, as they, I, I you know, I think. The Taliban is either going to be overthrown or it's going to have to get a lot more moderate. And we need to support that progress. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the proliferation of technology in impoverished countries is putting a spotlight on genocides, violence against women, forced genital mutilation, 
among other horrors. And, you know, over 85% of the world now has cell phones or access to cell phones. And so when these things happen, we see them. And it often feels like, oh, crap, you know, the world's going to hell. But really, it's as bad as, like, this stuff has always happened. Now we're seeing it, and now we can stop it, right? We can put pressure on countries to, to make these things stop. That's an important point. You can be focused on the fact that, oh, crap, all this bad stuff is happening. Or you can say, this is an opportunity to to really like push this issue into the spotlight and change mm-hmm. it. Like, I think that's a very important distinction. And that that's just a way of shifting your perspective yeah. on, on the way the modern world operates. You mentioned that the world is now a lot less anti-gay. And I think this is, in America, this is something that somehow it's just like dropped out of the news, but how quickly we went from gay marriage being illegal and being such a hot button issue to now it's just like not talked about. And mm-hmm. right wing right wingers basically lost that battle and just stopped talking about it. Yeah. I mean, it's legal all over the U S hell it's legal in Ireland for goodness sakes. <laughs> in in 79% of Americans in 2019 said that gay people should be accepted in society up from 49% in 1994, like 1994 is not that long ago. Yeah. And I look at my own attitudes in the 90s and I, you know, I'm deeply ashamed of the degree which I was anti-gay back then and have, you know, I hope made progress. And I, you know, I wasn't that I was hostile, but it was really sort of a lot of these easy to take sort of hedging opinions that I had. And, you know, the language that I used, uh, you know, the, the F word or just using the word gay uh, mm-hmm. jokingly to refer to things. You well, know, yeah, in high in high school, you like saying something was gay was was just like slang. Yeah, uh, you know, and this was the late '90s, and everyone did it, and it was. I don't think a, people really thought about it, and that was the problem. Yeah, is that you didn't really think about the consequences of that word, the impact of that word, mm-hmm. and why why making that word into a slang word would be damaging to people. It is really illuminating that uh, that Matt Damon news piece that came out a few months ago that was like mm-hmm. maybe a few weeks ago, I guess, where he was like, I just recently like stopped using the F word. It's like, dude, it's 20, 2021, man. We're, <laughs> we're, like, if this would if this had been an article about you when Goodwill Hunting came out, that would have been like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, 20 years too late, my friend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously. And, you know, I think. One thing that, you know, I've noted is that get attitudes about gays have improved in every country measured, but that the wealthier countries tend to be more accepting of homosexuality and the words, world is getting wealthier. So I think that's a, a, a really positive sign. So, I mean, again, it's one of those areas where we still have a long way to go. The fact that 21% of Americans still in 2019 said that gay people should not be accepted in society is still too mm-hmm. high. But it's a big improvement over what it was, and things are still going up. And I'm hopeful that, you know, by the time my daughter is an adult, you know, those numbers will be high enough to where she won't even have to deal with mm-hmm. uh, discrimination. Yeah. We're more educated. Mm-hmm. So in 1800, 90% of the world was illiterate. In 1900, 78% of the world was illiterate. In 1950, which again is not that long ago, 44% of the world was illiterate. In 2000, 18% was illiterate. In 2016, 14% of the world was illiterate. The 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 rate of progress is declining because we're getting closer to zero. And that's just mm-hmm. the way things work. Like it's harder to do it, but we're still improving dramatically. And yeah. 
you know, in 1970, 65% of girls in primary school age in the world were enrolled in school. So that means that 35% did not have access to education. In 2015, this rate was 90%. Again, it should be 100%, but it's getting better. And now we have a different emerging problem, the overeducated. <laughs> and I hate to say overeducated. I don't think people can be educated enough. But in the U.S., there's a generation struggling to get lucrative careers after graduating. And we were all but promised when we were kids that you go to right. college, you'll have a great career. Show people would show graphs. Oh, people with this degree will make this amount. And it's like, oh, yeah. And it's a lot harder than that. You know, I think they overpromise. I think that policies can affect that and could make that problem moot. But again, it's it's a it's a political will issue. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, we we could we could drop some boundaries to people um, starting their own businesses. I'm not an economist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm just a dude wearing an Atlanta Crackers hat on a podcast, uh, <laughs> talking out my ass. But I, I think that this is why I'm hopeful for the future. Is I I do think we're at a turning point, and I think that like. We, we can solve things through policy and and it it's really like you said spotlighting things and yeah there's just no reason that we should have college age people or sorry college graduates like working at starbucks like we should be finding ways to get those people uh innovating for us well and really at the end of the day there's nothing wrong with working at starbucks right we should people should be able to get a living wage working regardless of what they're doing make it easy for those those people to have the starbucks experience to start their own uh hipster coffee shops come on yeah, awesome there's never there's never enough of those right we need <laughs> so, talk spoken like a true bay area resident yep <laughs> <laughs> so I, so I, I wanted to shift into the the problems of our time and okay. i was i was kind of pitching this to my daughter abigail who's 12 and very intelligent and, you know, her question was, well, what about climate change? What about continued population pressure, ecosystem collapse? And I agree with her. Like, these are big problems. But really, at their heart, they're engineering problems. And humans are really good engineers. And capitalism, for all its faults, is a great motivator for progress. Mm -hmm. What about the proliferation of bad information? I mean, we saw that in spades in the 2016 election, right? The amount of nonsense that was out on Facebook. And, you know, we're seeing that with COVID with the amount of conspiracy theories mm -hmm. that get pushed around. Um, I was reminded of a Neil Stevenson book called Fall or Dodge in Hell. And in the book, it takes place in sort of the near future. And there's a, uh, a manufactured nuclear attack in Moab, Utah, that doesn't actually happen. And one of the main characters is actually there when it supposedly happens. And there's, it is a really striking image because in the book, obviously Moab's still there, but there's all these people that are insistent that it isn't. And in order to get into town, you have to go through roadblocks where they just will warn you, oh, it's a radioactive wasteland. And then you turn the corner and, you know, there's a diner that you can go eat at and everything's fine. <laughs> um, you know, it, it just, it was a really good illustration of how people can really deny reality because they really want it to be one way. And I think it's really important that, uh, you know, we continue to push good information dissemination. And that doesn't mean information that's positive for one political group or that's favorable or unfavorable for the government. That means a free press. One of the big challenges, though, I think, is the cost, right? I subscribe to several newspapers. I pay for those subscriptions. And that's not something a lot of people are willing to do when they can flip on the news and watch cable news or their local news or their local newspaper. And, 
or just go to Facebook and, you know, see what's being posted there. But there's a lot of, we need to figure, figure this out, how to, uh, can, how to get good information, good, reliable information. I think NPR is a good example. And as much as it's painted as this left wing travesty by the, the right wing, you know, it really is pretty balanced news coverage and it is free. So I would encourage people who are looking for a place to get free, good news to, uh, Seek out their local NPR station. Facebook is just going to have to eventually go away. Yeah. <laughs> Solve that problem. Honestly, I think it is. I mean, how many people do you know of our generation that are still using it? No one. Yeah. And Abigail's generation, like no one's using it. You know, yeah. is it's it's become more and more something that's used by our parents' generation. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to become more and more uh, less and less important as time goes on. Yeah. There'll be something else. And there's always yeah. something else, right? But yeah. So some of the other problems we have, nuclear weapons, we've talked about this, we've had a whole episode on it, bio-warfare. Yeah. I mean, obviously, these are huge issues that we're going to hopefully not have a nuclear attack or a, <laughs> a dirty bomb or some sort of accidental meltdown or what have you. But um, it's it, that's that's an issue that's not going away. Well, I think one thing that we've come out of the cold war and the post cold war era with is an understanding that nuclear warfare, bio warfare, these weapons of mass destruction should not be used under any, under any circumstances. Yeah. And if a country were to use those, they would be immediately turned on by the entire international community. And so I think it, it's possible and this stuff is out there, but you know, it, as time goes on, I think it's less and less possible. It's less and less probable that it's going to happen. Can you see can you see full disarmament happening in our lifetimes? No, I don't think so. I think there'll always be something. There'll be mm -hmm. uh, you know, but I also don't think that the you know, the, I don't think that we're going to have as many. Um I think we'll have less, they'll be more effective. It's an easy way to say is they'll kill people more effectively. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, I think that at the end of the day, they become less and less of a convincing option. Aside from Donald Trump, we haven't had a president that has spoken positively about using nuclear weapons. And I honestly <laughs> think he was an anomaly. But So change means that some people are going to feel left out. Yeah, um, change, change is not. It is asymmetric. And there's going to be rebalancing of power in society. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, and we're seeing this now, they feel disempowered and they feel helpless. Yep. You know, symptoms of this are increased gun sales and nationalism. Survivalists. Um, yeah. Digging uh, caves in their backyard. Yeah, to um, prepare for something as stupid as the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, we, we all know the zombie apocalypse is code for uh, when society disintegrates, I'm going to kill some people. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it feeds into doomsday mongering. But in reality, the more equal things are, the better society is going to be. The I'm going to hoard a bunch of old style super soakers, Dave, so that when apocalypse <laughs> come, we can have some fun. <laughs> but like, so, I mean, in, at the end of the day, it's, it's in all of our best interests to make sure that everybody has equal opportunity. And, you know, the people that see a power loss and fight against it, they will fight. They will get old. They will die. And mm -hmm. there'll be a new, there, there will eventually be some, some new measure to divide society up. I don't think division and uh, prejudice are going away anytime soon, but 
you know, the, the it's I, we just have to keep fighting to fight fighting that tendency. We need to be involved in our communities and make it easy for people to live here. Yeah, look, we're we both live in California. It's incredibly expensive. There are a lot of local policies which make it hard for places to build affordable housing, mm-hmm. and not even just affordable housing, which is like around here. It's like a what that means is that you build a giant apartment building and what like a portion of the units are affordable, but most of them aren't. I mean, yeah, we need, we need policy that truly makes it so that we can build. Yes. Um, and develop uh, appropriate land use and, and have our communities actually affordable and sustainable. And then from there, make it so that regular people can like, start businesses and have regular jobs and live in these communities with regular jobs. Like not yeah. everyone that lives in a city should have to be making six figures. Yeah. It's exactly right. That's going to be the thing that makes everyone feel part of society and feel that they can get ahead. It's mm-hmm. just getting back to that sort of approach. You know, help tax the super rich. I'm all for taxing <laughs> the hell out of the super rich, but, but cut taxes for the regular people. If yeah. you if you make less than 100k, I don't like you should not pay taxes in my opinion. You should be <laughs> given you should be you should be like given all the incentives possible to like excel and start businesses and and be a positive part of your community and not penalized. It's like a video game, right? As you get to higher levels, difficulty ramps up. Exactly. But when you're there yeah. at the beginning, it's not hard. it's 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 made easier for you if you get people out of the political system and you make them angry and you take away their opportunity and you make it so that they have no access to the job market they're going to get they're going to get angry resentful bored and in their spare time they're going to turn into raging assholes that threaten (laughs) the well-being of the rest of us yeah so let's just make it so everyone can live yes (laughs) Well said, my friend. Well said. So I just want to leave on the parting note that our generation, we're more open-minded than our parents' generation. They were more open-minded than their parents' generation. And I think our kids' generation is going to be more open-minded than us. And I think that's just going to lead to more and more progress and faster progress. For sure. That that is a great note to close on. Um, Our kids are going to be way better than us. And that's the way it should be. Yep. <laughs> things just think things always advance and and you want to leave your kids not only in a with more opportunity than you but they should be better people than you that's yeah. the arc of uh, the arc of our uh, of our society so all right man it's a good chat yeah um, we're gonna we're gonna have a season three at some point here i really want us to talk about pumpkins so uh let's hope, make that our that opener man that will be our opener. Yeah. Dave's going to watch Pumpkinhead. I'm going <laughs> to listen to the full Smashing Pumpkins discography. Remember the in Pulp Fiction, there was a robbery at the beginning. And I always thought it was funny because when you got to the credits, those characters were referred to by their pet names for each other, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. It's going to be, we'll we'll dig into the minutiae of, of pumpkins and uh, pumpkin culture. Yeah. So, uh Season three coming soon. Uh, On that note, I am Andre 3001, a space odyssey. And I'm a singular baked bean. And thank you for joining us on Planet of the Meerkats. Farewell. (laughs) 
The Meerkats are David Garrison and Neil Fries. Our theme song is by the one and only Tawny Frogmouth. You can subscribe to Planet of the Meerkats wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll find links to all of our social accounts at planetofthemeerkats.com. We're trying to send a little old-fashioned positivity into your ears, so your support means a lot to us. Thanks for listening.